Good morning, Sarah Heffala. Good morning, Nancy Rommelman. I feel like you wanted me to not start the recording. But here we are. But here we are. Actually, it's probably not really morning for you. It's probably like three o'clock in the afternoon for you, isn't it? In your new Nancy, writing schedule. I woke up at 1.30 in the morning. What time did you go to bed? 8.30. Well, that that's a full night's sleep. <laughs> not really. It's five hours. Okay. I'm basically yeah. doing the night shift at this point. I basically have a night shift job where well, I write through the night and then everybody else gets up and I'm like, I want to go to bed now. Is it, but you can do that for now, except you're super busy. You've been traveling all over the state of Texas and you've got more travel coming up. But um, yeah, I'm in hell on my social life. Uh, I, I, I'm on the five hour sleep thing too. I don't really like it. I'm trying different things to like sleep more. I'm not sure what this is about, but um, hey, Sarah, I think I recall you saying like two minutes ago that you had a few things that you wanted to uh, tell the listeners. Good morning, listeners. Good morning, listeners. Or good afternoon, or good evening, or good middle of the night, whatever it is for you, wherever you are in your world. Um, I wanted to give an update on my Twitter friend. You know, last time I teased, last time in the episode, I, I teased that I was going to reach out to someone that had dinged me on Twitter. I did. Right after our call. I called her and I left a message and then I left a, and then I texted a very polite message that said, Hey, you know, I read your message on Twitter and I'd love to talk to you more about this and, and understand this a little bit better. No response. And I wasn't surprised by that, but then I was surprised to find the next morning when I woke up, which that day was like four thirty a tweet storm of like 10 different tweets describing what a horrible, and it was about the Atlantic article that I wrote. It was, that's what she was angry about. She was angry about the Atlantic article that I wrote and specifically a line that said, but claiming sympathy with these fallen creatures, meaning Kavanaugh and Brock Turner and I think Ryan Adams or Johnny Depp, I had mentioned, had become taboo. And she makes the point that actually sympathizing with those fallen creatures is what women had, what society has done with throughout history. And that I was only backing up the status quo and that cool girls forgave men, bad girls never did, and she was a bad girl. She went on to explain uh, some tough stuff. She claimed that she had been raped by her father at four and that the discovery or the, um, when she told her family this, they cut her off and she said it felt like losing legs. You know, um, we talk a lot about the scorn on Twitter. I believe this to be true about most scorn, most places. That no matter how awful it is, if you scratch the surface of it, you'll find some deeper, painful personal truth for the person that's uttering it, unless they're a sort of sociopath. Or a fabulous. That was true with this person. I, um, I felt that she misunderstood me still. Still don't understand how Christine Blasey Ford got pulled into this whole thing. Although, you know, I did talk about Kavanaugh. I shared with her the New York Times piece that I'd written about him. uh, And that debacle in which I expressed sympathy with both parties. And I told her that I'd call her. Oh, at the end of it, she said, if you still want to talk after reading all of this, I'm happy to chat with you. And I wrote her back and I said, I will call her later. I'll call you later today. I'm on deadline, but I'll talk to you a little bit later. Our mutual friend, Megan Daum, texted me and she was like, are you going to really call that person? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, you're a badass. And I was like, well, that's funny because like this guy I'm talking to on the phone thinks I'm an idiot. Um, you know, it's a it's a long, this is a long way to go for a Twitter spat. Um, but I called her. And the phone had been switched to some sort of fax machine so that when the phone picked up, it was like, (laughs) tried it again, same thing. I sent a 
text message and said, I don't know what's going on with your phone, but I'd love to chat today. That was two days ago. And what do you think happened? No response. No response. I, you know, it's interesting. One of the things about Twitter spats is people, you know, they they throw their little bit of poo and then they usually run away and usually they're anonymous. Um, and that is sometimes the end of it, of course, sometimes it could catch fire. That's a disgusting pile of poo catching fire. Um, but this woman, I know you did, where you were able to leave a message on her machine once. It was kind of a weird kind of mechanical Minnie Mouse sounding voice that had picked up. Um, the minute you started to say, well, and then my father raped me at four, I, all my red flags start flying. The, the moment she started to say that. The, the moment she said that, because it's, you know, first of all, this is a person you don't know at all. Um, and she's trying to make her, um, her position, her argument known to you. And that's going to be the first thing that comes out of the bag. This is, I, I, I've written about a lot of people like this. There's always going to be this unassailable thing they've had happen to them so that no matter where, where you stand or however you try to talk, they're always going to have that one. And it's always going to be bigger than what you had. I mean, um, probably, right? So I was like, okay, so this person is seeking engagement. She's seeking to uh, attack you for some reason. As I'm kind of with Megan there, it's like you took the bait a little bit, but okay, because I actually think it's fascinating to say, all right, you want to have a discussion about this? Let's have a discussion. Because mostly they don't want to have a discussion, right? They just disappear. Um, but all of the things that have happened since just strikes me as this is, um, this is a, I'm not going to say a non-person. It's obviously a person, but it's it's some sort of, um, game she's playing for whatever needs or deficiencies she has. I do not think this is a person that wants to discuss anything with you in good faith. I, I don't even think this person is probably who she says she is. Yeah, I don't. Um, I don't know. I mean, again, we're dealing with the hall of mirrors that is the internet in 2023. As Nancy said, um, when I got the voicemail, the her voicemail had the a very childlike squeaky voice even more squeaky than you nancy rommel i'm not squeaky you're a little squeak a okay a little, little bit a little bit but i mean it, nancy's like a cool husky squeaker and this was like a ve- yeah. like a very much a baby voice and yeah. i thought well you know to be honest with you that tracks with somebody that's frozen in a kind of trauma i i uh you know that 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 hmm. tracks with the story she's telling that that doesn't mean it's true i don't know and i I won't know. And I wish this person the best. And I, I free myself, uh, from this, from this, you know, you, you know, I have to be really careful that I don't let my, my mind wander down these halls that are impossible. Like there's never any answers for me and I, I lose time there. So I, I have to get back to work. But in case anybody was wondering, I, I did follow up and the answer was null set once again. Yeah. I mean, there is only so much time and these things can be very um, distracting or engaging to a certain sense, but I don't, I don't know that it's going to take you where any place super interesting beyond where you've already gone. Um, yeah. But speaking of super interesting things, can I return to a couple of our conversations before we launch into what we've got going today? Yes, please. What do you think I'm going to bring up? What is the story that I can't let go of, but I'm not going to, and it's good for everyone. Are you going to make me post my chicken bitmoji? Is that what's going to happen? Yeah, that's totally going to happen. Okay. Okay. Just so you know, listeners, Nancy is such a Nancy that she has all these bitmojis. She's like the last person standing that's still using bitmojis. And what, what's <laughs> <laughs> and what's okay about this is A, that it's Nancy, but B, it actually looks like her, which is really weird. She's got an, a bitmoji because of her like freakishly cartoonish, beautiful eyes, the, the, in real life, the Bitmoji actually looks like her and her pink hair and everything. Okay. And she has a Bitmoji for every single okay. occasion. Can, can I just can I just say something? I mean, yes, I'll, I'll take all no. this credit for I'm being sorry. so yeah. creative. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yes. So what it is, I built the Bitmoji a couple of years ago. And when you go on your little Bitmoji app on your phone, it's got billions of things to choose from. You can type in like, 
hey, or hungry, or sleepy. I typed in chicken, okay? And that's what I got. It's not like I'm super creative in creating these things. It does it for you, but it does actually so look Nancy like me. Nancy tracked down a chicken that was exactly her size, and she <laughs> photoshopped it onto her Bitmoji face, and it took her hours <laughs> so that she could have the perfect response to something I said. Anyway, no, that's not what happened. But what happened was I was telling her that I had some more really interesting insight about <laughs> fucking chickens. And she <laughs> sent me a bitmoji of herself inside a chicken costume, which we'll put in our episode notes. Yes. Um, and that's what artificial intelligence will do, baby. But what's up with the chickens? What's the latest installment on the chickens? Yeah. If you haven't been listening to our podcast, first of all, my condolences. Second of all, wow, you're in for a treat, especially if you happen to be curious about the moral intuition about sex with dead animals, because it's become one of the unexpected running themes. Um. A few weeks ago, I posed a situation that Jonathan Haidt does in The Righteous Mind, whether or not is it uh, okay for a man to have sex with a dead chicken. Um, this is this is rich. This is rich material. The news you um, can use. This is the news we can use. And I, uh, the thing is, is, I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. And I, I think that's wrong, but I don't know why it's wrong. And I haven't been able to articulate it. Uh, so anyway, um, we got, I got a Twitter DM from one of our listeners and I thought this was interesting. He said somewhere back in our lizard brains, we know that sex is meant for procreation and the farther it gets from procreation, the ickier it seems. And this is pretty far afield. Now that's interesting. And that's a very, that's going to be a very controversial, uh, observation with our gay, uh, listeners who welcome, we love you. I, we don't know you, but whatever. Um, but I will say that that's a very interesting take that there, that, that the, the human body knows that sex is meant to procreate. We really were wired to procreate. I, I absolutely a hundred percent agree with that. I, yeah. I, I told, I've told a very quick story that my, my daughter's father saw me from, he was on top of a cliff and I was down getting in a river. We never, we were on the same movie, but we hadn't really met. And he saw me and was like, I'm going to have a child with that woman. His something, our, uh, uh, the bodies knew something that we didn't know even before we knew each other. So I'm a really big believer that the body has knowledge that the mind has forgotten and that yep. modernity yep. has removed from us. And, you know, when, and there's all these different ways that we've been separated from that base animal drive. Um, one of them is the pill. And condoms, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. we are so separated from the high stakes of what uh, a penis and a vagina really is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's all sorts of implications for that. And some of them are good and some of them are bad and yada, yada, yada. But I thought that was a very interesting take. Um, so I wanted to share that. But it was our cat, our friend, Cat Rosenfield. <laughs> Whose book who I, I finished last night. And, and of course she did because... That bitch, when she's not, it's, she's like the Jessica Fletcher of Twitter. You know, it's like when she's not solving murders and she's not writing best-selling books, she's figuring out the moral conundrums of our podcast. It's not even her podcast. And she's super funny as she does it. So let's just, let's just give it up for Kat Rosenfield, whose book, her latest novel, you must remember this, I finished last night. I actually didn't work most of yesterday because I had to keep reading this book I highly recommend it. But yes, you can read what Kat wrote to us. I've got it in front of me as well, but I, I turn the floor over to you, Pepla. Okay, here's what Kat says. Hi, ladies. I was just listening to your latest Smoke'em episode and have a comment vis-a-vis -vis the acceptability of fucking a dead chicken. Not a moral argument so much as an organizing principle of the universe. It's like this. If it's morally acceptable to eat it, it's not okay to have sex with it. And if it's okay to fuck it, it's not okay to eat it. I cannot think of a single exception to this rule, and I'm convinced I'm really on to something here. She adds, uh, I will only add re my theory that while the edible fuckable categories contain no overlap, there are certain things you can neither fuck nor eat, e.g. cats. There's a swath of the population that would disagree that, with her on that I was one. just going to say, from, from her lips to, Let's yeah, there, yeah, so. 
Yeah. Um, so, okay. Obviously, this is a brilliant and I would say pretty much correct spot on insight. What else has, is there anything else you've unearthed this week? No, I just want to take a moment to okay. savor the okay. the sort of elegant logic of this. If it's okay to eat it, you can't fuck it. And if you can fuck it, you shouldn't eat it. I mean, bam. That's yeah. like Socrates. Yeah. Speaking of that, we have a new follower, Socrates at gmail.com. Oh, I, welcome, I, he, Socrates. He he, Socrates. he resurrected literally just to to uh to uh to subscribe to our show. So thanks. He, thanks, Socrates. He pulled a Meechin. Yep. Um, okay. <laughs> I, I there's a there's there was a there uh I wanted to surface some comments uh about our last episode which was on the controversial figure of Andrew Callaghan the the young man behind All Gas No Breaks and the HBO show HBO I mean this place rules um who had been brought up on uh sort of ticked like he had been slammed for TikTok allegations of sexual coercion and sexual pest behavior. And um, you and I spoke about this. I think, I think a little bit, I mean, gosh, you know, it's, it's a complicated issue. I, I know that when you and I get going, we sometimes, uh, we lose some of the softer edges that I think each of us might have one-on-one discussing a topic. And I wonder if this was one of those times, but, um, I want to share uh, a, n- a note that one of our listeners put in the comments. And by the way, uh, our comment section is amazing. It our is. listeners are so smart. The conversations are are wise and funny and interesting. They're like a continuation of the podcast. Um, it's only for paid subscribers, but you know, it's it's if you're if you're not seeing that, I think you're missing part of this experience. Um, and we don't get a lot of negative comments, but 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 we got one on Andrew Callaghan. Okay, Nancy, are you ready to hear this? I am ready to hear it. Okay. Oh, gosh. This episode was the first time I was super uncomfortable listening. Such a slippery slope. To judge how and when a woman comes forward about sexual assault is not encouraging progress on this topic. As a mother of a soon-to-be college freshman woman, I fear the label sexual pest becomes an acceptable loophole for coercive sex. Some women, especially young women, struggle with being too polite and self-conscious to assert themselves in these pushy situations. Too many excuses for the men and their, quote, misunderstandings, and not enough consideration for the women's psyche. I felt like you both generalized on the topic instead of just discussing this one specific situation. Respectfully, this was seemingly reckless. Um... I held on to the seemingly, you know, because she didn't say we were reckless. It was, you know, seemingly. So we had a little wiggle room there. Um, so I actually did listen to part of that section when we were talking about it. I think you and I slightly disagree. You're a lot more, you bring a lot more sort of collateral and experience to it um, and understanding, I think. I think I'm a little more um, skeptical in this if she's wanting to talk about this particular case in this particular case, because of number one, the timing of it, and also the request for money, which you also were, were more lenient about. You're like, Oh, maybe your friends were just teasing or like, you know, go ahead and ask them for some money. I, I also don't think that's a good look. Um, I also, I, you know, I think there was a little more about that letter where we won't go into. I kind of, I kind of am going to push back on her a bit. Yes, people should come forward when these things happen. They should also not get into these situations in the first place if they can. And I know we can bring 44 Santa's bags full of reasons why people do get into these situations. Um, But it's also possible sometimes to not get in these situations. Not always, but sometimes. And I think to say that we should not also consider that, which is, I think, what you and I were talking about. Like, maybe you don't want to get yourself in that situation. Um, I'm, I'm just going to push back a little bit. I, I think that young women, any woman, anybody, anywhere, as long as they're, you know, not a child, has to um, take some responsibility for the situations they find themselves in. And that's uh, where I stand. 
on that topic. So um, I also went back and listened to that part of the episode and actually thought we talked about the case quite specifically, but it's true. We did go into um, more generalizations. I mean, especially me, because I'm talking a lot about college kids and sexual consent and stuff like that. That's an issue of of great interest and also study for me. Um, the part where I think you could accuse me of being reckless was when I was talking about the the line, the the sort of routine from Bill Burr. Um, I'm going to throw Bill Burr under the bus, uh, <laughs> which is where he lives, so it's fine. Um, but uh, no, I mean, you know, I was making the joke that sometimes no doesn't mean no. And that's a very dangerous thing to say. That's, that is a... Um, it's very uncomfortable in a society that has created a very bright, clear line that says no means no. Actually, we, we've we've complicated that that narrative quite a bit with the consent conversation because that was changed to yes means yes. And that's a whole other topic for a different show, maybe one other day. Um, but I just want to say that um, I don't think it's my job to to talk about how things should be. I think it's my job to talk about how things are. And the reason that the Bill Burr <clears throat> routine um, <clears throat> hit for me is because it's how things are, which right. is that sometimes no does mean no, and that's very serious. And sometimes no is a playful, coquettish come on, and it means something different. Right. And if you don't see that those two things coexist, even if it's they coexist quite dangerously, then I don't quite understand. And that's not necessarily what this listener was saying. But I think that's where she's going with this idea. And we also have to remember that she's got a, a a daughter that's nearing college age. This conversation has got to be very close to her heart. Um, if you don't agree with Nancy and or me on this topic, you are not alone. There are many, many people out there on the World Wide Web that do not agree with us on this topic. And we have the evidence trails to prove that. You know, I am the mother of a daughter, and I can tell you that there will never be enough protection in this world for your child. Never. Ever. I mean, I have a grown daughter, and I still worry about her. I worry about things that are irrational to worry about. And I have to tell myself, no, Nancy, the plane's not going to crash or whatever it is. But the thing that I gave to my daughter, I hope and I believe that I did give to her, my daughter, was to be aware of her surroundings, to, you know, uh, Crossed her instincts. All right. I remember when she was a young teenager giving her a chapter which from this book called The Gift Gift of Fear, which I know some people are like, yeah, well, it only thrums up fear and it's giving these scenarios that aren't really true. I, I found it to be an interesting chapter talking about how women sometimes don't listen to their inner voice because they yes. want to be nice. You hear this all yes. the time, like, well, women just really want to be nice. I'm like, yes. why the fuck should you be nice? Don't be nice. If this person's being a dick to you or you don't know this person. I also told her at like seven years old, I was like, Tavi, you're walking down the street to your friend's house. Some guy comes up to you and says, get in my car. I'm going to shoot you in the head. Do not get in the car. He has no reason to shoot you. Okay. He's trying to get you in the car. Don't get in the car. We tell him, we make our children strong so that they can get into these situations. They can assess these situations before things get bad. That's what I think is our job. Not, yes, things are going to happen after the fact and it's going to be terrible and people are going to be hurt. But we can also arm our children by saying, it's not just about to listening to you for what happened and having sympathy and, and for what happened to you. It's about helping you not get into that situation. And I, I felt a little bit as though the writer was like, well, you know, you have to understand these things are going to happen to women. I'm like, well, yeah, but also they can happen less. It's not something they want. They are also responsible for that. I think one of the trickier balances is one between a kind of female accommodation and sexual boundaries. And by that, I mean that women are socialized and often maybe by nature to be more accommodating. We are a, the nicer species, hashtag not all women. Um I happen to love that women are nice. I think women have responded to this by saying things like, I don't give a fuck what you think. And I don't, you know, no fucks given and all this stuff that I think is honestly performative nonsense. But I, I get where you're coming from. Um, but I actually am a nice person and I, I like to surround myself by nice people and, um, and I like niceness, but I think I've had to do a lot of work 
around realizing that saying no isn't necessarily going to hurt someone else's feelings. I think no. when we project this onto boys, it doesn't really hurt their feelings either. I mean, it might, but I mean, like not nearly as much as we think it does because it hurts our feelings to get sexually rejected. And so we don't want to do that to someone else and we over empathize. And I think this is the part that needs to be addressed far more than all these kind of Title IX codes and all this Byzantine legalese that's been built up to allow women to continue to be accommodating and then, you know, walk it back the next day. That stuff is no good. I would say in my lifetime as a sexual human being, I probably have been coerced in air quotes twice. I, I can remember both times I was a teenager and I I really didn't want to, but I, I kind of did. Sarah, it never occurred to me to then make some sort of, well, first of all, I really never saw these people again. I mean, that was part of the thing, you know, was, but it never occurred to me that that wasn't my fault. It was my fault. I did not have It's not your fault. It's just you had a role in it. It's a shared situation. I don't like the word fault in these things. I could have, I could have insisted. Let's just put it that way. And I didn't because I was just like, Ugh, I just want to, we, we've talked about this before, just like do it, get it over with. But it never occurred to me to like put this person in my mind as this like horrible human being for the rest of my life. It was a, it was an experience. I didn't, I didn't really gain, I certainly didn't gain anything. Maybe I did gain something. Maybe I gained some insight into what I didn't want to do in the future. Yeah, um, I tend to think these things are instructive. At least I yeah. like to look at my life and, and the missteps that I've made as instructive. Yeah. I wonder how you would have understood that experience had it been another era and had that man in question become a social justice voice on the internet that was raising his fist in solidarity with women. You know, you might have thought differently. Yeah, I will say, though, I also am still alive in the social justice era and find myself being um, rejecting a lot of the um, a lot of the things that they claim to be. So I know, but we're so much older. Our um, our listener, Jessamy, our dear Jessamy, uh, had a great response to this, and I'd like to share it if I could. Um, Jessamy writes, sexual negotiation is one of those critical but difficult skills for girls and women. So much of sexual appetite is receptive. In parentheses, she says, see, come as you are. It's a great read. And parentheses. I think two concepts are important for teaching personal autonomy to girls. Number one, that being universally liked is not a worthwhile goal. And two, that you can change your mind at any time. Me too is great for number two, but not so helpful with number one. I'd much rather teach a flexible, critical mindset to my kid than rail against a hypothetical male hegemony. That was what led me to smoke him in the first place. Oh, amen. I love this answer. Amen. It's also incredibly compact and eloquent. I mean, you really are to rail against people, anybody, for however long you choose to do it. What a terrible spot to be in for so long. And when do you let go of it? Is there a winning? How can you win? And to be clear, you're not speaking directly to our one listener. You're talking about the cultural, the cultural drumbeat. Yes. And it's kind of tying in with what we're going to talk about uh, in a second. I want to point out that the book that she mentions, Come As You Are, is a a sex manual that was written by um, a sex therapist named Emily Nagoski. I read it. I, I'm not as much of a fan as as Jessamy is. I have some problems with that book. But I did think the part about sexual receptiveness was fascinating. And what that means is that whether by nature or by socialization, women are more receptive sexually. We are used to people coming on to us as opposed to being the pursuers. And, uh, and, and, and you know, Emily Nagoski goes into more science and research behind this. Uh, But it's really very, very uh, illuminating. We live in an egalitarian society that wants to see men and women alternately as very much the same and very much different. And it's it's very hard to keep these two things in our head, you know, that we're equal but different. Um, But that's true for all human beings, right? Uh, We're different and we're also the same. Have you ever seen any of those nature videos? I've seen some with birds, male birds who are trying to attract the female and yeah. what they will do. It's incredible the things they will build, the sorts of like designs and what they will do to their body. And it's like, it's absolutely the imp- imperative. And you see the, the chick birds just sitting on the, 
on the little branch going, yeah, maybe, I don't know. So, Doesn't it make you want to be a bird? <laughs> um, we are birds. Okay. In, so in British Sarah, slang. Sarah, what, Nancy. We, what if we sent, like, I don't know, I like, you know, I don't know if people, you know, of course, sometimes we're talking about stories in the news. And somehow this week, there were a lot of things in the news, or we were noticing a lot of things in the news this week about fat. Because right. it's January. It's a new, it's a new oh, year. Yeah, yeah. Resolutions. Um, I, I mean, I think that is something that Sarah and I can probably talk about until she falls asleep since she's been up since 1.30 <laughs> in the morning. Um, but it is a very... It's a fascinating topic. It's a huge topic, no pun intended. And um, I think we're going to talk about it a little bit today. I've got three or four different ways I want to talk about it. Um, should we talk about you fat shamed your beautiful girlfriend? Should we start there? Let's do it. Okay. So before I get to this, I'm going to ask you a question, Sarah. So we've known each other since uh, last spring. So let me ask you a question. If I had gained, I don't know like 40 or 50 pounds since wow. you if I had gained that much weight since since we'd known each other and if I were continually like let's say every day um telling you um how terrible I felt about myself um how I I didn't like that my clothes didn't fit how I hate getting dressed how I just basically hated myself I felt locked in a shame sort of spiral or a shame suit and I was asking you for, I was I was reaching out to you, I guess for help. What do you think you would do? What would your response be to me? I don't know. I mean, if I I am so this is like I'm very much a creature of AA, and it's a program that teaches you not to give advice unless someone asks for it. So I don't give unsolicited advice, and like somebody. Uh, tweeted yesterday, like, do you have a moral obligation to tell your friend if she's unhappy? And I was like, no. And you have a moral obligation to be a good friend, which might include listening. But also, how do you know she's unhappy? Like, I don't, I don't understand yeah. this. So I don't, I guess I would be surprised and I would probably be a little worried about you because it would be an indication that something was off. Right. And, you know, I would also say, were you to bring it up with me, I would say, girl, I sit here in this fat shame suit as well. Like I have, I have gained and lost so much weight over my life. And I have been in so many bodies that were only the same body. And I have dragged around shame as a person that was very much overweight and a person that was underweight, you know? So I, I know all the different stations of the cross on this. Okay. Or most of them. And so I would, you know, and then if you, but if you asked me, like, what what would you ask me hypothetically? What would you want to know? I would say, I don't talk about this really, Sarah, because I'm so ashamed that I, I and mm -hmm. I try to put up a good face like throughout my day, but I notice I don't go out anymore. I don't want to see right. people. I don't want to go dancing. I don't want to have sex. I, I feel so ashamed, but I'm going to, I'm going to confide in you because you're like, you're my bud. And I, I just, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get out of this. I don't know how to make myself feel better. Yeah. I would say, well, like a wise woman said to me once, this is a friend we're not going to take to the party in the following year. Right. Which so, is something that Nancy said to me once when I came to her feeling like I was, I was heavier than I wanted to be and that I had let my body kind of slide into the rearview mirror as I was working on several projects. I have a habit, a longstanding habit of gaining about 10 pounds, 10 to 15 pounds of hibernation weight when I'm working on a really big project. And it's, I don't think it's necessary, but it's definitely like it keeps happening. And then like I come out of the cave and then I shed it again. And then a year later I'm back. And, you know, you could say this is, uh, well, I don't know what you would say. It's just been my life. It's yo-yo dieting. It doesn't feel like yo-yo dieting to me. It feels like um, feels like I I I I lose balance. So anyway, I, I think that you're saying this sort of you know we're talking about a shame fat suit. I I think it is actually correct or 
correct for our purposes here or my purposes here to sort of personify it. Okay. So you have you, you're you inside and we're going to, I'm going to assume, and this is actually a big assumption that there have been times in your life or people's lives where they've felt pretty good in their body. Like they felt there's been a, uh, what's that sublimity or what is that thing when it, when it, like, you're just one, you're, it's almost like you, um, if you see a, like a sci-fi image of some sort and it splits into two different images, but it's the same person when you're feeling like in a good weight, you're feeling, I don't know, healthy. And that could be anything for me. It could be 125 pounds for someone else. It's 165 pounds. It doesn't matter where you feel where you're solid and good and ready. Like you can feel it. You walk in the supermarket, you've got like a bounce in your step. You just feel like correct. And that, and not only correct, but you feel like, like kind of a billion metaphors here, like a car that's all been tuned up and ready to go, like ready to hit the road. You're just yeah. ready. You're ready. Yeah. You are fully ready. integrated is the way and that that's, I that's feel. What I'm, that's what I'm looking for. Fully integrated. Exactly. You feel full, fully integrated. And that's going to vary from person to person, right? Okay. When you gain a significant amount of weight, for some people, it's not a significant amount. Like I am, as you know, I'm sort of a, a lean person. And even if I gain a little weight, I feel like, okay, I got to rein that back in order to feel fully integrated. But let's say I gained 40 or 50 pounds. Yeah. That is about, I would invite people to walk into their kitchen and pick up their microwave, all right? Because just about everyone has a microwave. And a microwave is going to weigh about, I don't know, 12 to 15 pounds, all right? So, oh, wow. Or let 10, whatever, it's weight. So let's say you have gained the equivalent of three or four microwaves. That means as you move through the world, you are always obliged to carry these microwaves, all right? I can see getting a little pissed off. I can see getting frustrated. I can see getting upset, getting teary because you can't move as fast. You can't eat properly because everything you can't kind walk of- walk downstairs. It hurts yeah, to walk downstairs. Everything goes kablooey, okay? So I would say as my friend- if I'm reaching out to you from this sort of shame suit, which is almost like a second person hanging around with me, yeah. like the fat person is coming with me. Like, yeah. I don't want this person to come to the party, but I built this person. Okay. I mm. built this person, which is why I feel shame, right? Mm. I don't like him or her or whatever, whoever you want to call her. And I'm coming to you for help. I, this is just me, it's not anybody else. I would literally want you to take me by the hand and say, okay, I'm in charge right now. I am going to help you. No, seriously. I am going to help you with this, Nancy. And this is what we're going to do. We are, I'm going to help you. Um, if you need to go see a doctor, we're going to do that because you might want some medical help doing this. We are going to get you on some sort of structure or, or regimen. And we are going to take long 10 mile walks and we are going to have some fun. And we are going to, Hopefully, as you start to reintegrate, as na the Nancy's that's inside there starts to push back to the surface and, you know, Jerko over here starts to recede, you will be able to be back in your body and then you can do the things you want to do. That's what I would want. Now, yeah. now. well, I've been to Al-Anon. And so I would never do that because one of the central tenets of Al-Anon is it's not my problem. I didn't cause it. I can't fix it. And so what I would do is tell you that what I had done in that situation, and if you chose to do it yourself, you could. And if you asked for my help, I would give it to you. But I almost never impose my will on someone else, even though I have at various times in my life wanted that imposition. And, you, you know, you have a nickname, uh, Nancy Mommelman. This is true. And you can really hear it in that example. I mean, God bless Nancy. Like I when I'm when I'm crumpled on the couch in tears and can't find my way out of a bag of potato chips, I want this woman to take the goddamn bag out of my hands. That's right. Take and the bag. get Let's me go. walking again. I mean, I do. I love you. I love you. And I love your verve and your you know, I love all of that. And, um, you know, but but it takes all kinds. But anyway, I think the point here is that um both of us would want to point an arrow away, away from the behavior. Right. And how can I accompany you? How can I be a good steward for you on your, what has to be your journey to and getting even, 
getting rid of this. Right. And even, you know, even just starting that, like I could say, no, Sarah, I don't want to do it that way. I'd say, okay, cool. Like we can start having a conversation about this, but let's get it out from the dark and let's start to do something. The and reason you're not I, alone. You're not alone. You're not alone. I'm here. I'm going to do this with you and I'm going to stay here as long as it takes. So I brought this up because you had sent me this advice letter. It's from a site called Autostraddle. I've never heard of it. I'm not it's sure. It's an LGBTQ plus site. Okay. So someone wrote in, and I'm not going to read her whole letter, but I'll just read the very beginning. And it's Is it from a woman or a man? No, it's a it's a it's a lesbian couple. It's a lesbian oh, couple. right, because it's an LGBTQ plus right. site. Right. Okay, so um my girlfriend and I have been together for a few years. Recently she has gained a lot of weight and it's been causing her significant distress. She doesn't like how she looks. Her clothes don't fit anymore, and she hates getting dressed in the morning where she used to love fashion. And then the woman goes into a whole bunch of things like, I'm telling her she's beautiful, she's this, she's that, I want to help her, I help her get a gym, I do all these things, nothing's really working. And then it's like, I hate myself because I feel so ashamed that I don't want her to feel bad about herself. Because she's saying, I should be a fat activist. I should be... I should be saying, there's no problem here. Everything's fine. You know, I should still I, be attracted to I, her. I still should. But at... She said at one point recently, she asked me straight up, she asked me straight up if I am less attracted to her now than when we first met. And I couldn't lie to her face. So I said, yes, which to my mind is honesty. It's hard. It's a hard thing. But Sarah, if I had gained 50 pounds, if you were my lover, and we've been dealing with this now for six months, and I'm constantly asking you for that, I mean, you know, it could be the it could be the case that you're more attracted to me because I'm heavy. This, you know, people have different tastes. But if I'm feeling so rotten about myself and vocally and every single day, you know, there's something else in the room with us here. It's not like the usual playful sex. I would appreciate if you're honest with me because maybe that will be useful for me. That this is almost exactly a passage from my life, by the way. Okay. Well, we did not pre-plan this, but but if you want to expound, expand on that. When I was 28 years old, I started dating a guy that was just a, you know, he's one of these six foot three bean poles. And he used to make us these like extravagant meals that were like out of top chef, top chef every night. And he was a great cook. And we were really, really heavy drinkers. And I would eat a lot. I would eat as much as he did, but I was a foot shorter than him. And I started to gain weight. And my friends would call it happy fat. I had not dated anybody in years. And it was so wonderful to be part of a couple, to live together, to not be away. You know, I just, I, I was at that time pretty happy, but I started to gain weight pretty quickly and we stopped having sex at least as much as I wanted to. And I was very concerned about this. This was new. We were new to each other. We had just moved in together. What was going on? And I asked him once, can you please think about why we're not having sex? And can you, can you tell me, I, I would like to know. And he said, okay, I'm going to think about it. And then he came home from work the next day. And he said, I've thought about it all day. And I've realized that I'm not as attracted to you as I used to be. And I was like, Jesus Christ, that took you all day. <laughs> but of course it took him all day to build up the courage to say it. Sure. And was it because of the weight? Or just and I said, why? And he said, well, you know, you used to live, you know, in Austin. I lived in Dallas. Now we live together. It's not as like exciting. You used to dress up every time you came to see me. Now you sit around in these like sweatpants and a hoodie. It's like your uniform. And I'm like, well, I'm fucking writing. Like, what do you want me to do? I, I got really snippy really fast. I got real feminist feisty on him. You know, what do you want me to do? Meet you at the door with some pearls and a dress, you know, good little wifey. And he was like, I'm saying a shower would be nice. Like, oh like we got we got Whoa. cross with each other really fast. And he, uh, just for the record, I like to bathe at the end of the day. Like, I don't know. It's just I like to shower me. before I go to bed too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I bathe at the end of the day and I, that's yeah. just how I do it. And you wake up um, clean. Yes. It's nice, nice and clean. Good. Yes. So anyway, um, I said to him, and I was getting drunker and drunker. This is a story I tell in Blackout, by the way, I think. Um, I was getting drunker and drunker and I was like, tell me that I've gained weight. Is, 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 is my weight gain why you're less attracted to me? Because honestly, this, is, this was my biggest fear. My biggest fear was that the weight gain that I didn't like, that I complained about all the time, that felt bad because my clothes were tighter and 
and everything hurt. I was so scared that it was also going to mean he wasn't attracted to me. And that was going to mean he didn't love me. I had mistaken unconditional love for attraction and desire. They're two different things. Mm-hmm. And I said, tell me. You know, it's almost like I was begging him, like, tell me. And he just sat there looking at me very cold. And he said, I think you've gained weight. Is that what you're asking me? I think you've gained 15 pounds. I don't like it. And I don't think you do either. He's right. And I just slammed the door and booked the hell out of that house and sobbed and told my mother and told my friends. And I told that story for years and years about what an asshole this guy was. And it took a really long time. And by the way, when you tell this story, and I usually told it kind of like more softer and funny, you know, your friends are just like, oh my God. Oh my God, I can't believe he said that. Oh, I, I, not this friend. And I remember, I remember being in New York. This was like, after we'd broken up and I was telling some friends and my friend told me um, that she had a deal with her husband that if either of them gained 10 pounds, they could cheat on the other one. (laughs) Well, I don't know if I'd go there. And I was like, wow. The thing is like, okay, so here's a question. Would you rather, I love the game, would you rather, would you rather be like sliced to death with razor blades or eaten by a shark? It's like, are these my choices? Um, Would you rather... You're hating the 15 pounds. You don't like it. You know you're not like getting up and putting on something cute or doing whatever. You don't like it and don't feel good about yourself. But you want some guy to tell you, oh, yeah, it's totally great, babe. What? Then you're like, well, then am I with the right person? Because I don't like this. So Okay, so here's what my rational friends would tell me. And I actually think this is, has a good, I think this has some some logic to it. Sarah, your weight goes up and down inevitably. It's really hard on you. It is probably not a good idea for you to be with somebody that is as hypervigilant about your weight as you are. That's all of that is true. But 15 pounds, okay, whatever. You're going to go up and down. It's who you know who you are. That's fine. And I'm sure you can be with someone who is fine with this. This sounded a little different in the telling, but you know, maybe I'm wrong. I want to get back to this, the answer that this woman got from Please. her question. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's extremely long. But essentially, the advice columnist eviscerated her and told her, God, I, I cannot believe what a terrible person you are. Now, let's go back a second and realize her girlfriend has gained a significant amount of weight, is desperately unhappy, and is asking her daily and complaining about it. And she has been as kind and everything and trying. She got a gym membership. Let's do these things. Let's do the things you used to love. On and on and on. Finally, the question comes, are you less attractive? And she doesn't lie to her girlfriend. Well, this is apparently she's done everything wrong, according to this advice giver. Um, I'm just going to read a little part of it. The advice giver says, I'm going to be completely honest. If your girlfriend wrote into this column with this story, I would tell her she should break up with you. Not because you were honest about your feelings, but because gaining and losing weight over and over and over is part of nearly everyone's life. It's so inconsequential in the vast tapestry of of existence. How are you going to handle it when really hard stuff happens? Like when one of you gets sick or disabled, then there's this long other list of things might happen, losing your house and all this stuff. I'd like to mention something here. Sarah, what is the biggest cause of disease in this country that helps people that that encourages people to get sick and ill. What Twitter. is it? Okay, you're right. Number one. What's number two? Uh, I think heart disease. Right. It's, obes- it's obesity, darling. Why is it obesity? Because obesity compromises every single organ and cell in your body. Everything. Okay. So if you are obese. Your heart has to work that much harder, right? Your organs have to work that much harder. You can't exercise. Your skin, I mean, we've all heard these horrible stories that like if you're morbidly obese, you get these weird like skin diseases and lesions. You're more prone to cancer. It is absolutely a devastation to your health. And we know that. You know why we know that? Because when we are living in our fat shame suit, we cannot, we cannot do the things that we're supposed to do, which is move, which is live. So I found this to be so 
so detrimental to the gal that gained weight. Okay. She needs her partner to help her lose the weight if she's unhappy with the weight, which she is. And instead, the partner is being told, you're the problem. You must accept this, not only accept it, but, you know, unconditionally celebrate it. I think this is, I think this is so, it, not only is it wrongheaded, it's dangerous. People are going to die a lot younger. You know, do you notice you don't see obese old people? They, well, they, you do. You see some no, of them. no, I don't think so. Look at really old people, like 90 year old people. They're, they're small. Obesity is just a terrible comorbidity factor. I mean, obviously, it was the hugest one uh, during COVID. But I'm going to. Yeah, that was wild when there was like, I mean, obesity was like a major risk factor. And all the news stories were talking about race. And it was like. Uh, well, okay. Interestingly, you know, there are certain racial populations where there's more obesity than others, but not really that much. I will say I'm going to put a link to uh, something here, which I think I showed you a couple of weeks ago called uh, the, I think it's the Global Obesitory Observatory or Global Obesity Observatory. And it's a worldwide map that shows you where there are the most obese people in the world. And it's, it's changed. It's, it's, it's pretty interesting. And it's a, it's a nice site. What Does it just track with affluence though? Uh, I don't know. I didn't look that up. Where where do you think are the the most obese pers- countries in the world, Sarah, or nations? Isn't there like some island like Malaysia or something like that? I didn't see that. Indonesia, I, Indonesia. I don't think so, but I will say that you know the U.S. is way up there, as is Canada, uh, Egypt, and Lib- and Libya. In the oh, 40s, really? In the high 40% of obesity. Why? Um, well, I don't know. There's probably some know. genetic component here. And then also maybe something. I mean, I do think there's something really creepy about like, you know, like um, what is hydrogenated oil or with corn syrup and things like that. Like stuff we put in our diet that the body doesn't respond to. And um there's there's a, a listener had had um written in about like there was a question on the last episode that was sort of off topic but it's it's actually relates to this topic which was like do you think there are certain people that just can't lose weight and um i don't i think anybody can lose weight the question is i do think there are, there are certain people that are never going to have other body types like i'm never going to have a lean body type By which I mean, but I mean, I will look like when I am at my like normal weight, I I look small, curvy and small. But I'm always going to have like tree stump thighs and a big ass and big boobs. And like, I don't like it's always going to be with me. And there's certain body types like I'm never going to be. I've been between 113 pounds. I'm five foot two. I've been between 113 pounds and 195 pounds. Wow. Yeah. That, that, that's eight, 80, 80 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. That's pounds. a spread. That's a, that's a lot of weight. Um, I am okay. Just for sake of comparison. So I'm the opposite. I mean, I've, I've been heavier a little bit when I was in college, but I'm, uh, I've been the same weight essentially since my twenties. Uh, I'm wearing pants that I bought in 2008 and, uh, but I'm also pretty conscientious. Like I get up in the morning, yeah. and I, weigh, I weigh myself. I'm like, you know what? If I'm, I mean, occasionally I've been a little too light. Uh, when I first moved to New York, I was a little light and friends are like, here, eat some pasta. Yeah. But mostly it's like stays the same. And then if I, if I see I'm like three pounds more, I dial back because I want to feel ready. I want to be prepared. I'm going to give a totally unscientific um, idea about people that can and can't gain weight, people that have a propensity. Maybe we have a smart listener. I'm sure we do that can tell me if this has anything to do with it. I do wonder, like I have a friend recently um, who he's a pretty pretty big, strong guy. And his wife's a pretty, she's a pretty big, strong gal. They had a 12 pound baby. Okay. That's like, that's a pretty big baby. I was less than six pounds. Most babies are like six or eight pounds, right? I wonder if like for years and years and generations and generations, your family has been one sort of body type, you know, very, very thin or, or more on the heavy side. If you just, you're, you're like, you have a preset 
You know, yep. like you have a propensity. Um, I want to just jump for a second to the next topic. You you hit me up with a um, with a uh, New York Times uh, podcast earlier in the week um, about a weight drug called Ozempic. So Ozempic was actually created for diabetics, a type two diabetes, but they realized that it had such a dramatic effect on um, people's weight. It helped them, I think, to lose like 17% of their body weight, which is quite a lot. Um, and 80% of people who have type two di- diabetes are obese. I listened to this podcast. It was with uh, Dr. Fatemi Cody, Stanford. Um, she entered medical school in the early 2000s. She was asked by the interviewer who herself has struggled with her weight and who has lost 75 pounds using, it was either Ozempic or another drug called Wagovi. Um, oh, wow. she, when she was in medical school, she was asked, did they talk about obesity? This is the early 2000s. She said, not once, not once wow. in four years. Not one time was this mentioned. I mean, this is kind of mind blowing, right? Um, but she talked about the use of uh, this particular obesity drug, which is an injection, which you get once a week, and its efficacy. And it really sort of changed my mind about weight loss drugs. I'm not talking about like speed or, or you know, some crap that you buy that's not approved or weird just to crash diet. I'm talking about like if you have a serious weight issue hmm. and you want to lose weight, and everybody's been telling you, you know, it's like diet and exercise and cut back. This woman, this doctor told a story. She was in the supermarket. She'd just come from the gym and she ran into one of her patients who was a pretty morbidly obese woman. And she's talking to her, like kind of like trying to surreptitiously like sneak looks into the woman's grocery basket, like to see, oh, is she eating crap because she's not losing yeah, any yeah, weight? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And, and she's like, and she looks and it's all the right stuff. It's like lean protein and vegetables. Sure. And she looks but that's like, not necessarily what she's eating at midnight. No, true. But she says, I'm doing what you tell me to do and I'm not losing weight. I was like, you know what? I I have to say I have become, I mean, based on a 37-minute podcast, but um, I have to say if you are compromising your health, you are feeling like you can't live your life, you're not integrated with your body, you don't even know what you're missing, but you sense you are because you can't do what you want to do. I think I'm a proponent for these drugs. And the, the doctor did say she's gotten some pushback, especially from the like fat activist community who's like, you know what? Everybody deserves their dignity. And it's like, well, duh, of course everybody deserves their dignity. But you have to understand when I have patients that come in and they come in with like hypertension and from the obesity, hypertension, yeah, yeah, yeah. blood sugars, awful, all these awful things. When they start to lose weight, I get to cross these things off. They do not suffer from these things anymore. So the idea that you must just completely accept people and celebrate people who are extremely overweight, I think you're actually not being as kind as you can. I think that it would be a good idea to say, what else might you like? And can we help here? These drugs seem pretty interesting to me. There have been some conversations too about giving obesity drugs to children. I think that's a very, that's a, what is it called? It is called a Victoza. I don't know a lot about it. And it's very controversial. People are like, well, can't you just like, you know, get them to diet and exercise? Well, sure. But what if you could get them off that kind of shame spiral early and get them feeling better and being able to do the things that exist the way that you want them to? Well, this is a fascinating conversation. And I'd like to know a little bit more about the drawbacks of Ozempic because I have a good friend, uh, Mary. She's a listener to this podcast and I know she'll pipe up when she hears this. Um, and she's been telling me about Ozempic for a while. And But she also, uh, it's been too long now, but, you know, shared some articles about all the drawbacks of it. You know, I think you shit yourself. I think it causes all sorts of problems in the system. Like there are a lot of these interventions that also cause mm. some pretty wild problems. Okay. And, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I think we are becoming fatter. There's just no way around it. Part yeah, of that sure. is Western affluence. Part of that is our diet. Part of that is our sedentary lifestyle. And then you put the pandemic on that. And, you know, our fashion is accommodating that, you know, like the, the several stars that you, you but growing up, you never could have conceived of somebody like Lizzo, right? I'm trying to think where they're like very heavy. You had like were there very heavy set stars? Vine. 
Divine, the John yeah. Waters, yeah. you know, Roseanne Barr, these were punchlines. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, to have somebody that is fat and proud and presents herself as a sex symbol, it just would have been unthinkable. You know, one of the interesting cultural shifts, I grew up, you know, pretty normal weighted, but feeling very fat. And I've grown up to be pretty much the same size, but the world shifted around me. And, you know, I was dating one of the younger men and and he said to me, he was saying, you know, well, all, all of my friends like thick girls, but I don't like thick girls. And I was like... I was like, well, that's kind of not a nice thing to say to me. And he was like, what? You're not thick. And I was like, yes, I am. And he was like, no, you're not. And I was like, what am I? And he was like, you're skinny. And I was like, I'm skinny. And he was like, no, no, you got. And he's like, oh, I got to show you thick girls. And so he like gets out his Instagram and he's showing me all these thick girls. And like, and I was like, holy crap. Like, I didn't change the world changed around me. You know, my shape has always been this shape. But when I, when it was 1992 and Kate Moss was the be all and end all, I was a, you know, I was a lard ass. And now that Kim Kardashian is the model, I'm like, I'm normal. They've also completely, the vanity sizing is so weird. Like, oh yeah. That when, too. I grew up, when I grew up, sizes were like, um, Three, five, seven, nine, eleven, thirteen. They were odd numbers. Okay. At some point they changed to like even numbers. But when I go and find a dress like at a vintage store, I'm always like a seven or a nine. Like that's that fits. So a seven was kind of like a normal, kind of, you know, thin to normal person. Now I'm like in a size two. It's vanity. They want you to still think that like, oh, you're like a skinny mini. So yes, it might be worth celebrating the the Lizzo's of the world, but there's also still completely that idea that women want to be, you know, they want to be smaller. Well, we're, it's really interesting that fat, fat activism sort of coexists with this like hypervigilance around like clean eating and gluten-free everything. And, um, you know, the Gwyneth Paltrow sort of purity test of food, like the, the two, once again, we live in a culture that's defined by the extremes. And here we see this sort of, sort of pure as the, you know, driven snow in a river way of eating compared to like the, I can eat whatever the fuck I want and I can look however the fuck I want and don't tell me anything about it. Um, you know, the thing is, is that what I've, what I learned a long time ago is I can eat however the fuck I want. That's actually one of the things about being an American. What I can't control is how people might see me for that and what it might do to my body. That stuff I can't control. And it's up to me to find peace with how I move through the world. I mean, it, my relationship with my body is the longest I will ever have. It's longer even than the one I'll have with my mother, with my father. It's longer than the one I'll have with you, Nancy Rommelman. And wouldn't it be interesting that that relationship can be dynamic? You there, you have certain, you have control over this if you want it, if you want it. And we don't know, like I told you at the beginning of the year, we don't want that person to come to the party. Like why? So where will we be in six months? Or you could outsource your validation to someone else and, and tell them to gaslight you into thinking that you haven't gained the weight you know that you have. Or that it's all fine. I mean, I think it's actually cruel to be with somebody that has gained that amount of weight and just like absolutely like ratify it because what's happening inside their body, it's not just what's happening outside their body. It's what's happening to their health. And if you really love them, then you want that health to be, you know, protected. Um, well, I, I just want to say before we leave this topic, this is a conversation that has come up in my private conversations so many times over the years. On from every single angle. I know wives that want their husbands to lose weight. I know boyfriends that want their girlfriends to lose weight. I know wives that desperately want to gain weight and their husband doesn't care, but their husband gets tired of telling them that they don't care. It gets old. It gets old having to, to be responsible for someone else's self-esteem and to tell them that something is okay that they clearly don't think is okay. You know, this is something that becomes a rot in a relationship that will ruin your sex life. It will ruin your self-respect. 
and your respect for the other person if you're not careful. So, you know, everyone gets to work out their own relationship and love and desire and all that the way that they want to. But the thing that I found so unforgivable about that advice column was the way that the and, and by the way, I thought it was written. I had some beautiful sentences and it was like written really nicely. So I want to give the writer that because it had a lot of like, like verve. Right. Um, but she had this line that I thought was so unfair. And she says, if getting fatter over the course of nine short months throws you into this kind of tailspin where you find yourself not only unattracted to her, but you feel honor bound to tell her so. How are you going to handle it when real star- stuff happens? Well, that's a deeply unfair misreading of what happened. She did not feel honor bound to tell her so. She was asked. She was and she, asked and she wanted to be honest. She did the honorable thing and she was honest with her. Um, we are going to keep talking about fat, but I think we are bumping up against our uh, one hour time. You know what else time. we're going to talk about? What are we talk about? Milf Manor, Milf Manor had a second episode and your correspondent Sarah Heppola is coming to you from the scene. You want to know about chicken fucking and Milf Manor? Sarah Heppola is your girl. Okay, guys, we'll see you back here in a minute. For paid subscribers, bye. Hey there, Georgie girl, swinging down the street so fancy free. Nobody you meet could ever see the loneliness there. Don't try, or is it the clothes you wear? You're always window shopping, but never stopping to buy. So shed those dowdy feathers and fly a little bit. Hey there, Georgie girl, there's another Georgie deep inside. Bring out all the love you hide.